Hello, welcome to the Capital Employed podcast. For this episode, we had the pleasure of being joined by John Kingham. He is the founder of the UK Dividend Stocks newsletter and author of The Defensive Value Investor that was published by Harriman House in 2016. In this episode, John discusses his journey as a private investor, why he likes dividend stocks, his investing checklist, and two companies in his portfolio he's bullish on for the long term. This is a great episode and I think you'll really enjoy it. Before we begin, every so often we'll be doing write-ups about stocks from around the world that have piqued our interest. These will be mostly companies on the smaller end of the market cap scale that go under the radar of most financial media. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, visit capitalemployed.substack.com and add your email to the list. That's capitalemployed.substack.com. Okay, let's dive into this week's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with John. Hi, John. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Can you provide a brief introduction of yourself and how you got involved with investing? Uh, yeah. So my name is John Kingham and I write a blog and a newsletter at a website called UKDividendStocks.com. Uh, I started investing in the mid-1990s. I was just, I started to earn more money and I began to think about my retirement so I started to save up and I was started to put the money into a, a just a FTSE all share tracker so that initially that was all I was I wasn't interested in invested at all all I wanted to do was just save up for my retirement so that was in from the mid 90s and then obviously there was the dot-com bubble and then there was the dot-com bust and I ended up selling I sold everything in around 2003 pretty much the bottom of the bear market because my investments had gone down by 50%. I didn't know what was going on. So I kind of panicked and sold everything. And that that could have been the end of my investing journey <clears throat> back then. But what we did is to, in 2004, we ended up selling a house and we didn't buy another one. We wanted to go and rent for a while and live out in the country and so on. So I had this big chunk of equity that we had from this house. So then I wanted to invest that. So because I now had much more money to invest, I wanted to take it more seriously. So I started reading about investing and that led me on to uh, Ben Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor. So I kind of gradually, I got back into the market as a passive investor again, but then I gradually shifted towards um, value investing and initially was deep value investing. So investing in fairly rubbish companies that are trading at, extremely low valuations um and that that kind of worked out okay for a while but by that was about 2007 i started doing that which was around the time i I initially started a a website um, just to blog about my experiences and so that so i was a deep value investor from about 2007 to about 2010 uh but and then i found that that didn't really fit with my personality i didn't really like investing in fundamentally rubbish companies so i kind of shifted to a more quality defensive kind of value investing and i've been doing more or less the same thing ever since why focus exclusively on dividend stocks what makes dividend paying stocks so attractive for you I think it's it's it is just a per, it's a, a personal thing really. I don't think dividend investing is intrinsically better than any other approach. It just 
it fits my personality. I just like to be invested in larger, more well-known, more successful, more defensive, uh, reliable kind of companies. I guess ultimately at some point, uh, if I decide to retire, then my plan is would be to retire and live off of just the, the natural dividends that the portfolio pays out. So from that point of view, it's practical. Uh, but it, it's mostly it's just that these kind of relatively defensive dividend stocks, it just fits my personality. Can you talk us through your investment checklist? What type of businesses or characteristics are you looking for? Yeah, so so I've I've got a, a checklist that I've gradually kind of incrementally built up and improved over the last 10 or 12 or, or whatever years. And so fundamentally, I'm looking, I want the portfolio to produce a progressive, a, a kind of a high and rising dividend. I think that's the best description of it. So a progressive dividend with a good yield. So I'm looking mostly for companies that that fit that kind of description. So there are there are three main traits that I look for. First is quality, uh, then defensiveness and an attractive valuation. So quality is basically I'm looking for companies that can outcompete their peers consistently over time. Because if the company's going to grow, it needs to be able to stand its ground and even take ground and market share from other companies so you know you're, you're looking for things like you look at the at history halo you know, has the company got a track record of being able to take market share or move into adjacent markets uh, and just grow over time um, and you're looking for things like uh, does it have an above average return on capital which is often a very probably the, the strongest indicator of a, a of a company that is uh, is unusually competitive or has got uh, durable competitive advantages. Um, and so that's another th- that's another key thing that I look for. I try to look for companies that have got some kind of advantage that is going to help them compete and win against their peers over time. And that can be all, all lots of different things, like it could just be scale, it could be their brand or network effects or switching costs. There are lots of, lots of different things. So that's that's quality. It's basically a company that can outcompete its peers over time, uh, and then defensiveness is basically how robust is the company. You know, so I mean, ov- an obvious question is whether the core market is defensive. So if it's a mining company, then yes, uh, it, its its production might be relatively stable, but commodity prices shoot up and down so much that the you know the outputs of the company, the profits and dividends, are unlikely to be uh, stable so that's not really what i'll be looking for so yeah so you've got this, this question of whether the, the core market is defensive uh, you need the core market to be growing because if the core market is in decline it, it, you know like tobacco stocks one of the problems with tobacco stocks even though i own one is that the, the core market is shrinking so it's hard to call a company defensive if the core market is shrinking, because it's not going to be able to defend against inflation over time if the company ends up shrinking. Uh, and then there's lots of other things. So one of the things or the areas of things that I look at is whether the company internally is defensive or robust or not fragile. 
So and there are lots of things that can make a company fragile, even if it operates in a defensive industry. It could be reliant on a on a small number of suppliers or a small number of customers, or it could have a specific product that it's built around, which at some point might become obsolete and need to be replaced. And then you don't know if the, the replacement product is going to be as good. Uh, and an obvious thing that can make companies fragile is debt. So if a company's got tons of debt, doesn't matter if it's a tobacco stock, if it's got enormous mountains of debt, then that's still obviously an issue and undermines the robustness of the company. So that's defensiveness. And then the last thing is valuation. Uh, and my approach to valuation is it just it follows on from the idea that theoretically the value of a company is the present value of its future cash returns to shareholders. So when I'm valuing a company, I build a discounted dividend model of its future dividends. So you basically model out what what do you what's a reasonable and conservative estimate of its future dividends, uh, and then you discount those back to today to come up with an estimate of fair value. And then you can easily just compare the current price to your estimate of fair value. You can see if there's a margin of safety there. And if the margin of safety is big enough, then it's an, it's an attractive valuation. So that's, that's the, the kind of the fundamental, the three building blocks is quality, uh, defensiveness, and then valuation. Is there like a minimum uh, dividend yield that you wouldn't uh, go under? Yeah, at the at the portfolio level, I'm aiming for 5% at the portfolio level. But in terms of individual companies, uh, I don't have a lower limit. Having said that, if there were two companies that were broadly similar in terms of quality, defensiveness and valuation, then yes, I would probably favour the one that had the higher yield. And what would cause you to sell? Would it simply just be a cut? in the dividend yield no that's i i wouldn't sell just because there's a dividend cut because my i what i'm trying to do is focus on the long term so i'm looking in terms of quality i'm looking at what are the factors within the company that give it a long-term competitive advantage and the valuation again i'm basing the valuation on what are what's a reasonable estimate of of dividends over the next you know 10 years and more so a dividend cut in a single year isn't necessarily a reason to sell. It depends if it reflects a fundamental you know decrease in the quality of the business or or, or a change to the long-term expected dividends, then yes, it might be a reason to sell. But if a company like AG Bar, which I used to own, the maker of Iron Brew, they suspended their dividend during the pandemic. But that didn't reflect uh, any significant impairment to the underlying business. It was just a short-term decision made by management to protect the business in a situation where they didn't know how bad you know, the pandemic and lockdowns were going to be. So it was just cautious to suspend the dividend for a year. And once things panned out a bit and they could see that it wasn't the end of the world, then they reinstated the dividend. So that, that single dividend cut didn't fundamentally impair the fair value of the business. And how many stocks do you normally hold in your portfolio? There, I used to aim for 30, but over time, my analysis has got more detailed. And so I find it difficult to run a portfolio of 30 companies. So 
I've started to concentrate down. I've I've uh, brought my portfolio down to about twenty five now. I'm kind of aiming for around twenty. Um, and the other the other benefit of concentrating more on fewer holdings is that you can put more money into your best ideas. So if you own a thousand stocks, then there's not a thousand amazingly valued stocks in the entire world. So. <laughs> You know, they, you have to rank them from one to twenty. I think Buff, for, sorry, from one to to however many you've got. And Buffett said uh, something along the lines of, "Why would you want to put more money into your twenty fifth idea when you could put more money into your best idea?" So, if we can now jump into your portfolio, can you talk about two stocks that you feel have great long term potential, and what was your thesis for investing? Yeah, so the first company is Legal in General, which most people would have heard of. It's a, a large pensions, life insurance, investment management business. So the the way that I think about legal in general is its core business is providing a full range of services across the full life cycle of institutional defined benefit pension schemes. So if you think of a, a, a DB's pension scheme, you know, the first thing is you set up a new pension scheme. The first thing you need, everybody starts paying into their pension. So you need uh, investment management expertise. That money needs to be invested to produce a return. Uh, and so obviously, Legal and General is the UK's largest investment manager. I think they might be Europe's largest, but they're certainly one of the world's largest uh, investment managers with over a trillion pounds of assets under management. Legal and general can cover that. And then as, as the pension scheme matures uh, and they start to think more about uh, paying money back out to pensioners as people within the scheme retire, then the scheme can look to do things like liability-driven investing, which is where you're thinking about the cash flows coming out and your need to meet them because obviously with a DB scheme, you have contractually obligated liabilities. You have to pay the pensioners you know, some certain percentage of their final salary or, or whatever. And so there's various tools around that. There's there's like uh, lots of different insurance elements, like uh, you can insure the cash flows against inflation or currency risk or interest rate risk. And you can use insurance against the pensioners living longer than the scheme expected them to live. So obviously, the longer the pensioners live, the more cash you have to pay out. So that's a risk which you can insure against. So legal in general can you know do all of those various types of insurance. As schemes mature, they might want to offload chunks of of their uh, of the people within the scheme, the pensioners, uh, and just buy like a bulk annuity to pay for those pensions. So kind of completely remove the risk from you know the company, the sponsor, the the, the company whose DB scheme it is, and you just kind of offload a whole chunk of the people. Sh- to legal in general by buying a bulk annuity. So what that does is when legal in general, they get paid for this to do this bulk annuity, they'll get paid whatever, how many ever millions of or billions of pounds. Once you've bought an annuity, that capital then sits with the insurer. So in legal in general's case, they then they have this capital and they know they're going to have this capital. They've never got to give it back. They have to pay the income stream, but they haven't got to give the capital back. So they've got this capital for decades. So what they can then do with it is they can use that to fund the creation 
of real alternative assets, which is things like student accommodation, retirement villages, or uh, science parks or media parks. They can invest in these real assets that then produce a higher and more reliable income than you could get from public market assets. And you can then use those cash flows uh, you know, to pay out the, the funds to the, to the pensioners. And then at the, the kind of the last phase is where a company might decide to completely get rid of its DB scheme and hand the whole thing over to an insurer like Legal and General uh, just to get it off its balance sheet and just completely eliminate all pension-related risk. Uh, and Legal and General can do that as well. So as far as I know, Legal and General is the only company in the world or at least it was the last time I looked, uh, that can do this whole kind of remit of, of different services for DB pension schemes. There are other companies that are trying to acquire businesses to bolt together the same set of services, but Legal and General has already been doing this for years, so it's, it's certainly got a, a head start. So that, that's the basic business model. And in terms of quality, defensiveness, and, and valuation, I don't want to go on forever, but but the quality, um, you know, it's, it's it, whether it can outcompete its peers. It's already been around for two hundred years. It's a UK market leader. Uh, you know, it's got a, a good track record of mid single digit growth, consistent growth. It's got a return on capital employed in double digits. Got scale. It's got a fantastic reputation. It's just got a lot of the traits of a, a quality company that I'm looking for. And then in terms of defensiveness, the fundamentally, the pension business is very defensive, you know, because uh, people are paying into their pensions all the time. And once they've got the assets, they just get the, uh, the investment management fees, which just come in consistently. Uh, it's just a very steady, long-term business. There are risks. Uh, one, of, like, one of the main risks is to do with the balance sheet. Where as, an, uh, as, as a pension business, you've got the liabilities on the one hand and you've got all of the assets that you're gathering from people on the, on the asset side. And so there's a risk, there's a kind of inherent leverage in insurance companies. And so there is a risk that a significant market decline can uh, weaken the company's balance sheet, which is what happened in the GFC, in the, great, in the global financial crisis. They had to cut the dividend for a couple of years to, to uh, strengthen the, the balance sheet. Um, but as far as I can tell, looking at the regulatory capital cover, the amount of capital, the kind of buffer that they have to have within the business, that's almost double the regulatory minimum. So from that point of view, it looks, it looks like they've got a strong balance sheet. So from my, in my opinion, I think it's a defensive business. And if finally, on the, the valuation, the company's got a track record of mid-single digit growth. They, they, management expect the dividend to continue growing at about 5%. My model, my discounted dividend model, has the dividend growing at about 4%, so slightly more cautious than management's expectations. Um, but the yield is, dividend yield at the minute is about 8%, just shy of 8%. So you've got an 8% yield from a company that has a mid-single digit growth rate that is, you know, in my opinion, it's reasonable to assume that that can carry on uh, for the foreseeable future. So my estimate of fair value is about £6 and the company's share price, when I last looked, was about £2.50. So there's an enormous gap 
between my estimate of fair value and the company's share price. So either I'm completely wrong <laughs> or the share price is extremely cheap. Uh, I think it's extremely cheap. So that's why legal in general is one of my uh, largest positions. First glance, it does look um, very cheap. It does. I, I think with the yield at 8%, we're into the zone where people now don't want to buy it because they don't believe that an 8% yield is sustainable. Uh, but if you look back at the, the the COVID crash a couple of years ago, the yield was 10 or 11%. And there was no fundamental problem with the company at all. But there we go. You know, either either I'm right or I'm wrong. <laughs> either way, you know, it, it looks attractive. Okay, thanks for sharing that one. And, and what about a second company you'd like to talk about? So the, the second one is uh, Telecom Plus, which is the UK's only, or at least it's, the, it's a multi-service utility supplier, and it supplies a wider range of services than any other utility supplier in the UK. So it does uh, electricity, gas, telephone, landline, broadband, mobiles, uh, and home insurance. So what makes Telecom Plus interesting is it's, it's completely different to all of the other suppliers. So most utility suppliers, they, they use what's called a, a, a tease and squeeze or price walking approach to pricing. They will offer unsustainably low teaser prices on uh, comparison websites to attract new customers New customers sign up, and then over time, even mid-contract, which is very annoying, they will ramp the price up by inflation plus 4% typically. So they bring you on board with a, a low price that is not profitable and is probably making a loss for them. And then over time, they hope to keep you on long enough uh, until they can actually make some money. With the, so the, the problem with that approach is that, that you're constantly attracting customers who are chasing the lowest price. And so the problem is as soon as you start to put the price up, those customers, you're attracting switches, people who are used to using price comparison websites. So they will then, as soon as the price starts to go up, you know, they'll go, just go back to the price comparison website and look to, to switch again. So Telecom Plus's approach is the complete opposite. They specifically target people who don't want to switch. They're looking for people who are not that bothered about having the absolute cheapest deals in the market. They're looking for people who just want a reasonably decent price, not to be ripped off, and they want simplicity. They, they, they would rather have all of their services, all their utility services from one supplier and get one monthly bill and then forget about it because they've got better things to do than go on price comparison websites. That's that's what uh, Telecom Plus gives them. Their, their trading name is Utility Warehouse. But what they do is uh, they specifically target... Right, so the, the problem with these people, so these people who don't want to switch, the problem is that they're not on price comparison websites. And if you do Wizzy TV adverts, they don't care. They're not interested in, in any of that. They're just, they're not interested. They're disengaged in the jargon. So the, the problem is, how do you contact these people who are not engaged with switching? So what Telecom Plus does is they have, I think it's about 50,000 what they call partners uh, who are mostly existing customers. And these are people who 
earn a bit of money on the side, although some of them run full-time businesses, by promoting Utility Warehouse to or Telecom Plus to their friends and their family and their colleagues at work. And if they're more serious, then they might have a website or they might have a stall at a in the middle of a shopping center or something offering entry into a free prize for, to win £20,000 or something if you give them your details, whatever. They, they, it's, it's a much more hands-on approach. They, they go out and they specifically look for people who are disengaged from the normal distribution channels that, that utility companies use, i.e. the price comparison websites. So it's just, it's completely different. And so once the idea is that once these people switch, uh, and if they switch all of their services, then Utility Warehouse is able to offer competitive pricing and also make a decent profit because they aggregate customers across electricity, gas, broadband, mobile, and insurance. And that the fact that they can gather customers across multiple product lines enables them, if they, you know, they run like a single low-cost office or where most people now, most of their employees work from home. So their customer support costs are very low and they've optimized the business to be able to run, uh, you know, on relatively thin margins that allows them to make a decent profit without having to keep ramping prices up and up and up all the time. So anyway, so it's, it's, it's fundamentally a very different business to all of the others. Yeah. And so in terms of the, the quality and the dense offensiveness and the value, quality it's uh, it's produced double digit returns on capital employed for a long period of time it's had mid single digit growth for many years they're a very focused business they've been around 25 years basically running exactly the same business model for the last 25 years their competitive advantages are that you know they're different they've got this sales force effectively of 50,000 people none of the other utility companies have got that and it would take years and years and years to build one up and the, the founder is still the executive chairman. That kind of owner-manager approach tends to give companies a more long-term focus, which can be an advantage. Uh, in terms of defensiveness, yes, it's obviously it's a defensive company because it's a utility supplier. Uh, it doesn't have to worry about any of the hedging costs of energy and gas because it has a specific deal with um, E.ON, where it, it basically it buys energy, electricity, and gas off of E.ON uh, and then just passes that on to its own customers, you know, at a slight with a slight margin. Yeah, and in terms of internal risks or things that might make it fragile, there's you know it doesn't have a lot of debt. Uh, it just seems like a nice steady business. That, uh, there's a possibly an issue around the contracts that it has with suppliers because I think it only has one supplier for each of the utilities that it supplies. So it might take uh, telecom services from EE as a white label service and relabel that as uh, as its own services. However, it, it doesn't think this is, this is a problem because most of the contracts are very long and it says lots of the other suppliers kind of fight with each other to sign deals with Utility Warehouse because Utility Warehouse or Telecom Plus gives these other suppliers access to parts of the market, i.e. these non-switchers, that they can't normally access. So I, I don't think that's a particular problem. And then, okay, so valuation. The valuation is not as attractive as it used to be. So the yield now is around 3%. My dividend model expects dividend growth of about 
7% for the next decade and then a guesstimate of 4% after that. And so my uh, fair value estimate is £25 and the current price is, <clears throat> is £20. So there is a, a margin of safety. The current price is still below my estimate of fair value, but only by a fairly small amount. Uh, that's largely because uh, in October last year, the price, uh, the share price was ten pounds. So my estimate of fair value was twenty-five. The share price was ten. So that looked really attractive. Uh, and over the last year, it, Telecom Plus's share price has gone up by a hundred percent, as all the other energy suppliers, or most of them, have gone bust, and people have begun to realise that this is a very different business and is run in a much more sustainable way than you know most of the other energy companies that were attracting customers with unsustainable pricing yeah so the, the valuation isn't as attractive as it was but i do think this company has got good prospects ahead of it i think if it continues to be run well it's only got about two percent share i think of the total utility market in the uk so there's an enormous amount of growth potential there so even though the valuation isn't as attractive as it was uh, i'm still happy to hold yeah i can see it's had a fantastic year okay john thanks for sharing um those two companies uh, if you could go back to when you first started investing in, in hindsight is there anything you would have done differently with the knowledge you have now uh i think it kind of everything for the well it's, it's difficult to, to answer really because if i if i went back and i was me now back in 1995 i would invest completely differently i wouldn't you know i started off as a as a passive investor but i think the, the fundamental error that i made was in 2003 when i sold everything because the market had fallen by 50 percent. because like most investors or most novice inexperienced naive investors you think you, the only thing you know is the price that's the main thing that you can see and so when you see the price go down you think that the value of your investments has gone down but that's that's not true at all it's simply that some other investors have decided to buy or sell the shares or the FTSE all share at a given price it doesn't mean that the intrinsic value of the underlying businesses have changed at all so the, I think the key thing, if I could go back and teach myself something, it would be that there is a difference between the intrinsic value of a business or even of an index and its price. And if the price falls, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. If the intrinsic value has, has stayed roughly the same, as it probably did, you know, as it did when in the dot-com bust, the intrinsic value of the FTSE all share probably didn't change materially between 2000 and 2003, but the price halved. So if you think of it in terms of, well, it's it's like the market's gone on sale. It's like a 50% off sale, but that's obviously a good thing. If you're still in the accumulation phase as an investor, then the fact that the price has halved is good because it means you can buy twice as many shares that have the same intrinsic underlying value than you could before. I think that that would be the that would be the key lesson. I think that I would teach myself. Okay, that's great. Okay, John, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Um, where can listeners go to find out more information about you? 
the best place is just to go to my uh, website where I write a blog and a monthly newsletter. So the website is ukdividendstocks.com. Uh, there's also that site's been up for a couple of years. There's also an old site that I used to write at for about 15 years or whatever it is. Uh, it's called ukvalueinvestor.com. So if you want to have a look at an archive of articles covering lots of different companies, have a look there. But the new site is ukdividendstocks.com. Okay, John, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure uh, to listen to you. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been good. <laughs>